Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Colossians, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, the third chapter. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll begin reading, we will begin reading at verse 5. And there we read, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae wrote these words. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray you'd open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word, Lord. Speak to us this day from the Holy, Scripture, uh, Holy Scriptures, Lord, and seal your word to our hearts in permanently and effectually changing us, Lord, and conforming us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So Paul, you know, he starts off, you know the old saying, you know, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask what therefore is there for. And so he's building this section of Scripture, his his argument in the good sense, not trying, to, not trying to argue him, but the development of his thought in application. He's building it based on what he has said previously. That's why he says, therefore, it's like, all right, we know these glorious truths. Well, we look right before this. What are those glorious truths? Well, the glorious truths are found in chapter 3, verse 1. You were raised with Christ. In verse 3, you died. That is, when Christ died, you died. His death is your death. And when the Holy Spirit applied that to you, you were then experientially dead. That is, you were no longer who you once were. You've become someone else. That is, you've actually become who you're supposed to be, which is pretty nice, all right? Because keep in mind, remember, man was made originally in the image of God. And it's important for us to remember that in the Genesis account, when God looked at everything that he had made, everything was good, so we do understand sin and depravity and the effects of sin in our culture and every institution that there is uh, in our own lives and how it affects us and how we have to fight against it. And that's really what Paul is telling us. But we need to remember God didn't create a flawed, sinful, fallen creation. He created a sinless creation. And Adam 
put in the garden, he had a will, and he, being sinless at that time, had a free will, because later after he fell, he did not have a free will. Free will is a myth of the philosophers. But Adam had a free will that was mutable, it says in our confession, and clearly in history, in the scriptures. That is, his will was subject to change. He was not yet confirmed in a sinless state. And so we all know what he did. He sinned against God, and God had told him, The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, he went ahead and did that, and he did die that day spiritually. God accepted a sacrifice on behalf of him and Eve, and so he lived 900, I believe it's 39 years later. He actually physically died, but he became subject to death, and not just himself, he was put over the entire creation, if you remember. He was given dominion over everything, and so he plunged himself, all of his posterity born by natural generation, and everything that was under him, under this curse of death. And that's why we see death in the creation now. But that's not the original intent. That's not the original purpose. And with redemption, there is, you know, we're new creatures, but there's also the idea of restoration. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It still belongs to God. And the earth is filled with the glory of God. That goodness was not completely obliterated by Adam's sin and by death coming in, but it is a serious matter. And Christ came to redeem his people from that, and we look for new heavens and a new earth. And so we have died to what we once were. Christ is now restoring us, not to the image of Adam, but to Christ's own image, the Son of God. As a true God and true man, we're being restored to the image of his humanity. We're not becoming little gods like some of the cults tried to teach, which actually is what Satan promised. Remember, you'll be like God, okay? Uh, Christ is restoring us to be image bearers. And this is what Paul is talking about. We have these wonderful truths. You've been raised up with Christ. You died when he died. And he says in, in verse 3, not only did you die, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. And he says that in verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, and I pointed out that the original is simply when Christ, and then he says, our life doesn't have that relative. You notice it's italicized in your Bibles, who is. It's just Christ, our life. Christ is your life. That's a glorious truth. When he appears, so there we have another glorious truth. Christ is coming again. Then you also will appear with him in glory. So that's these wonderful truths. We have this hope. Things are going to be wonderful. Why? Because of Jesus. Things already are wonderful if we believe in Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. The Lord is with us. We're in covenant with God. He's at work in us. Sometimes at work involves chastening and suffering. As a matter of fact, more often than not, it absolutely does. But we have a glorious future. We have a hope. So then Paul then makes this moral application, the moral imperative, you might say, of the new birth, the moral imperative of this new life. All right, you've been given life, so what does that mean? Well, Paul's saying there's things you need to do. What does he say? The first thing, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, he's writing to the church. <laughs> I'm glad he went on and explained that he was talking about moral failures and sins because it's like, okay, which one of our members are we supposed to be putting to death, okay? Um, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the things in your life that are attached to you that are bad. Those need to be dealt with. They need to be killed. Well, how on earth do you kill sin? Well, you go to Jesus. You go to God in prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. You ask him to help you. As John says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to pray. Confession to Christ, not to a priest or another person, but confession of our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. That's effectual. You want to see your life change? Start calling on the Lord Jesus Christ and ask. You've got to be serious when you do this because this can, can be a very serious thing. Ask him to show you what you need to be praying about. Ask the Lord by his spirit and his word to show you what your sin is. Do that in prayer. Take time when you do that because it can be a scary thing. He may take you back and show you some of the things in your life that have caused you to be bitter, where you have a root of bitterness. He may show you things in your past that are affecting you now that are causing you to sin that you've never dealt with. It's a serious matter, so don't do it lightly. But if you're, you're, if you're serious about walking with God, take inventory and ask the Lord to be with you when you do it. Be on your knees with your Bible open in your room with the door closed, as Jesus said, but do it. You want to see your life change? Start confessing your sins. And I'm not talking about the little flippant prayers we pray before a meal. But by the way, those are important, and I'm not saying they're shallow. But I'm talking about getting together with the Lord in private and pouring out your heart to the Lord and asking him to show you areas you need to change in. And you'll be surprised. So how do you put your sin to death? You go to God. First of all, you acknowledge that it's sin. Remember John said, if we say we have no sin. This is the Apostle John. I love that because he encourages us by including himself in that group. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John's speaking from experience there when he wrote that epistle. He knew that. He'd had that happen. That had been ongoing. Uh, history tells us that John was very old, close to 100 years old, when he finally left this life and went to be with the Lord. Uh, John had learned through practice, as they like to say sometimes, he'd learned experientially that he needed to go to Jesus. And when you do go to Jesus in prayer, things change. So take this seriously. Put to death, therefore, your members that are upon the earth. Now, he uses here an aorist imperative telling the Colossian believers to either start doing this, putting it to death, because they hadn't been doing it, uh, or he's telling them to begin again, that they kind of backed off on it. So he's not giving them any excuse. He's not saying, well, I know you guys have always been doing this, he says, no, no, you need to start afresh here. You need to take this seriously. Remember, you have present imperatives which tell people, keep doing what you've been doing. Or if it's a negative, stop doing what you've been doing. But in a positive, keep doing it. And the aorist imperative means start doing it. If it's a negative, stop doing it now is the idea. Boom, from this point, stop it. The aorist is kind of what we call punctiliar. It's just it's like, you know, it's the difference between was going that would be a, it's not a present tense, but that's a continuous tense. And went, went is like you're just looking at the action as a point, went. I went to the store. Doesn't have anything, telling you anything about the duration. When he says, put to death, he means do this now, is what he's saying, okay? It's a very beautiful expression in the Greek language, a way of expression. So he's telling them, get this done with. And again, the word therefore, that means that what follows is based upon those truths. And so we have to remember that. He's not telling you to do this in your own strength. He's telling you to rely on what Christ has accomplished for you. In light of Christ's victory and our identification with his death and resurrection, these moral imperatives, commands, 
come forth for us to follow as redeemed image bearers. He's not saying do this so you can be saved or do this so you can keep being saved. That's a wicked idea, actually. It's a denial of the righteousness of Christ being given to us. He's saying because you're saved, because you have the righteousness of Christ, because God is never going to leave you nor forsake you, deal with this garbage. Don't be afraid to deal with your sin. God will help you. He wants you to live a holy life <coughs> in practical holiness and in joy. So he wants you to be an image bearer, to show forth his love, his righteousness, his goodness. And he wants you to be transformed by God's redeeming and sanctifying grace in Jesus Christ by the work of his Holy Spirit working through his word. There is to be no truce between our flesh and our spirit. By the flesh, I mean the sinful flesh. By members again that are upon the earth, Paul speaking to the sinful actions done in the flesh as Christ referred to the right hand or the eye or the foot. And he said, if it's causing you to sin, pluck it out or cut it off. He wasn't telling us to harm our bodies. He was saying, if your sin is that close to you and maybe that dear to you, deal with it anyway. You know, sometimes people have their favorite sins. When God rebuked Israel, he told them to get rid of their idols and their Ashtoreths. Well, Ashtoreth, you know, that was the fertility goddess. That was the, they get rid of the other ones, but they liked that one. That was basically like they get rid of everything except pornography, okay? Uh, and he says, you got to deal with all this garbage. Get this out of your life. Deal with those heart sins. And don't let anything that leads you into sin remain in your life. David said, I will set no wicked thing before me. And we wonder why we struggle sometimes. And not necessarily, that, you know, porn might not be a problem for you. And I thank God and I hope that it isn't. But what are you looking at? You know, what, what's, what's occupying your time? Is it just the empty vanities of this world? Uh, what are you reading? What are you thinking about? Is it, is it encouraging you in your faith? So anything that leads us into sin, it needs to be cut off and cast away from us. Uh, he then goes on to name just what those members are so we don't get confused about that. And he names off these sins, these transgressions that are upon the earth. That is, as we function, actually, they're real. He starts off and he says, uh, note that, uh, it's uh, fornication. The Greek word is porneia. Obviously, we get the word pornography from that. Porneia means harlotry, fornication, all things that lead to such wickedness. So he says, deal with that stuff, okay? The lust of the flesh, you know, we desire things we shouldn't. And those types of desires were originally good with the idea of procreation, but because of sin, they've gotten all perverted and twisted. And so uh, we have to deal with lust in our hearts. He says, deal with uh, the next one, uh, uncleanness. That's acatharsia. Catharsia means to be cleansed. You know, cathartic, we sometimes use that phrase. It has the negative A on it. It means impurity uncleanness anything that leads towards sin it needs to be gotten rid of isaiah 52 11 god speaks and says depart ye depart ye go ye out from thence touch no unclean thing go ye out of the midst of her be ye clean that bear the vessels of the lord in other words we need to have that cleansing work of the spirit we need to be clean so that we can serve god uh, we struggle with sin. God never condemns any of his children for their struggle. He does chasten them for lack of struggle. So th there's no truce between you and sin. Okay, The world, the flesh, and the devil is your enemy. By flesh, it means your own flesh. 
Our bodies are not yet redeemed. Your body's not sinful in one sense, okay? It's given to you to serve God with. It's the means by which we function in the physical world. But when the scripture speaks of flesh, it's talking about the fact that it's not yet been regenerated. Your spirit is redeemed. You've been born again by the Holy Spirit, and you've been changed. So that affects your soul, your personality. Your flesh, it's originally in the creation, intended to be good, but it still has the principles of sin at work in it. And that's what has to be dealt with. Okay, your body is a good thing. Like Paul said, no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and strengthens it. Uh, and he doesn't condemn us for doing that, all right? You're supposed to take care of your bodies. Your body belongs to God, so you're supposed to serve him with it. But because of our present standing, we've not yet been regenerated. And Paul talks about that in Romans 8. He said, we look for the redemption of our bodies. That is the time when our flesh will be sinless. And that will happen when Christ returns and the resurrection happens, okay? Or if you're alive when he returns, when you're transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Your body will be regenerated in that sense and never, never again be subject to sin. Pretty nice. You think about it. You'll never have a sinful thought. You'll never do a sinful deed. You'll never speak a word that doesn't glorify God. That in and of itself is a reason to look forward to Jesus coming back. Okay, uh, If you're a believer, you, you know, sometimes you say, Lord, I'm so tired of having to deal with my sin. I'm so stupid at times, Lord. Uh, you know, I allow my mind to drift or I... I'll, I'll be watching TV or something. I'll watch, sit there and watch some stupid commercial or a sh part of a show before I realize, whoa, I shouldn't be watching that. You know, the things that we, and we just allow ourselves to get led astray. That needs to stop. Uh, in Psalm 29, 2, we read, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. And we just started this with this, I think, this morning. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, that's first that holiness that's given to us in Christ. We have an acceptable righteousness and a holiness that is foreign to ourselves. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's an imputed gift, but it does affect us. The Holy Spirit works in us because of that forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that we've been given. That is Jesus' righteousness. God wants you to become who you're supposed to be. He loves you that much. He's changing your life. He's turning you into an image bearer because of his love. And so he wants you to worship him in the beauty of holiness. Deal with your sins, all right? And if your conscience is afflicted, drag your conscience to the cross. If your conscience won't let you have any joy, you say, oh, I did things in my past that were horrible. Ask for forgiveness. And then accept that forgiveness. And there is a point, if I can use the expression, there is a point where you just have to tell yourself, God says I'm forgiven so, conscience, you need to submit to what God has said. I've confessed my sin. I'm not going to allow my conscience to continue to beat me up. I'm going to make it subject to the gospel. All right. Now, that doesn't mean if you're planning evil or you haven't made things right or you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, okay, just don't let your conscience bother you. I'm not saying that. All right. Your conscience is also affected by sin. And so you need to understand, your conscience will tell you everything is great when you, you know, some people, when they're on their way to hell. Other people that are saved and forgiven, they think it's somehow some form of piety for them to always be miserable and make sure everybody around them is miserable also because they're just spreading the good news, right? Okay, that's not what God wants. He wants you to be filled with joy. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And so you can ask God to do that for you. He says that he wants you to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Love, love, that's important, right? Joy, 
gentleness, meekness, etc. He wants you to have those things. He wants those to be manifested. You know, what is the chief end of man, our, our, our catechism says? What is it? The chief end of man is to glorify God, and then what? And to enjoy him forever. So it's okay to rejoice in the Lord. Say, well, I'm not, I don't think I'm supposed to be joyful in this world. Well, not in and of the world itself, but in Christ, you should be rejoicing over everything. You know, you ask for daily bread, you get a piece of bread, okay? You should be happy about that. You woke up this morning. A lot of people didn't, okay? All right? Well, you woke up this morning. You're able to function. You have clothes on your back, food in your stomach. I hope you do. If you didn't, stick around. We have a meal, okay? Uh, God does wonderful things for his people. So in Isaiah 35, I love this, in verse 8 and 9, God speaks and says, And an highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for those the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. <laughs> okay, there's hope, beloved. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Way of, I love that. Uh, it shall be for the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. The way of holiness is not that. It's, it's not intellectual, okay? Although your intellect is part of who you are, so it has to be applied, and that is taking the word of God. But this isn't hard to figure out is what he's saying. Walk with the Lord. Do what is right. A child can understand this. Other things he says, um, that he uses the uncleanness, passion. Now, the old King James has inordinate affections. Uh, Theodore Beza in his Latin used um, molicia, meaning uh, effeminacy, or just liking things that God says you shouldn't like, or liking things inappropriately, all right? You need a, a, an emotional attachment to sinful things. You shouldn't have that. Get rid of those heart sins. And then he uses the phrase evil desire. Now, the word desire there is that word epithumia. You've heard that a lot, I think. It means lust, evil lust. You know, the question comes up, is there good lust? The answer is yes, there is actually. All right? In the old prayer book, it actually refers to uh, those that love the Lord as lustful men. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I don't think we want that around us, do we? Not in a sinful sense. It means people of desire. Our Lord Jesus Christ actually said, for I am, uh, 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 Christ said, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's Luke twenty-two fifteen with desire. That's the word epithumia. Jesus referred to it with his intense desire. Desire can be a good thing. You know, the Buddhism, I've talked about this before. Buddhism says, you know, get rid of all desire. You know, the uh, Eightfold Path or whatever that Buddha supposedly came up with. You, know, you must divest yourself of all desire. And I always love what my son Noah said. I've mentioned that before when he was talking to a Buddhist priest. And he said, well, what do you have to do to get rid of all your desire? The guy named all the disciplines that you have to do as a Buddhist to get rid of all your desire. And Noah said to him, wow, to do all that, you must really want that, huh? And the guy was like, yeah, and it dawned on him. Noah just snagged the guy, hung him on his own petard, I think is the phrase. Um, you can't get rid of desire. We're creatures of desire. We want to, to run in the right channels. There is good desire. Paul said, I'm, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 
Paul uses the word epithumia there. He said, I, I have this intense desire to be with Jesus. So you are creatures of desire. So quit desiring stupid, sinful things that diminish who you are and that, that are sins against God. Confess those and say, Lord, give me good desires. Let my desires run in the right channels. I mentioned, you know, use that word, you know, in, in our water system. When we have water running in the right channels, it goes out and irrigates fields and it brings forth life and produces all kinds of beautiful things. And we want there to be a forceful flow of water. We want it to get where it needs to go. But when it jumps over the banks and when it begins to flood and wipes things out, then death happens and destruction. And that's the way intense desire in the human nature is. When it breaks God's commandments and when it's allowed to run unchecked, then it's destructive. But it, it's, it's not like let's do away with all desire. No, deal with sinful desire. Ask God to put your desires in the right channels. All right? And that's what it, it, it's talking about. Uh, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, said, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. He, Paul wanted to be with the Thessalonian believers. So with great desire. Guess what word he used there? Great desire with much epithumia, with much intense desire. So it's not a bad word. But here know what Paul says. Paul's not talking about good desire, is he? He defines it so there's no mistake. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, cocaine epithumion, that is, bad, ugly desire. He uses this word cocaine, and it means bad or ugly or worthless. Ugly, intense desires. That's what lust is. We need to get rid of those. Uh, he also says then, uh, covetousness. Now, it's interesting the word he uses there. It's the word pleonaxia. That uh, sounds like a medical term, but it, 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 spiritually it is, you might say. It implies a self-idolizing, grasping spirit, according to Jameson, Foss, and Brown in their commentary. I think they nailed it. Uh, Beza translates it avariciam in his Latin, which we get the word avarice. It's greed. It's selfishness. Paul says, get this out of your life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one um, and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a word that means, uh, can mean wealth or riches. It actually comes from uh, the Chaldean word. It's a Chal it is a Chaldean word, mamona. Uh, and it, it actually it comes from the root uh, aman, which means that which is trusted in. Rich men trust in their wealth. Jesus said, you, can't, you cannot, he didn't say you might not be able to do it quite as much as you like. Jesus said there's an inability, it cannot happen. You cannot serve God and man. And that word serve there is related to the word slavery, okay? Uh, it's not, a, you know, the word help out. It's not diakonoi, it's doulos or, or douloi. Um, it's the word you cannot serve as a slave, God and mammon, all right? God gives us freedom. So this word pleonaxia is someone that's enslaved to their greed. And note what Paul says. He says, uh, get rid of pleonaxia or covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, when the Pharisees heard Jesus say that, you cannot serve God and mammon in Luke 16, 14, it says they derided him. They weren't going to change, and they didn't like the idea that he was pointing out their covetousness because they loved their wealth. Paul then goes on and says that these aren't optional things. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So wickedness, all these things he's just named, plus others that are named elsewhere, it's not an option. 
In this the children of God, John writes, are manifest. Here's how you know the children of God. And the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. So John said, if you have somebody that's out doing wickedness and they say they're a Christian, they're lying. He says, this is why you can tell somebody's really born again. This is how you can tell if you're really born again. Start with yourself. Don't be judging others. Are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? Have you broken with sin? Has Christ broken sin's grip on you? Doesn't mean you're not struggling, but it means you are struggling. A person is dead doesn't struggle. So a person is dead in trespasses and sins. There's no fight going on. A person who's alive in Christ, and I told you the analogy, when sheep fall in the mud, they're miserable. When Christians fall into sin, they cry out for the shepherd to get them, and he does. But a pig's more, man, muck, mud, filth. Oh, man, a pig's so happy. You love your sin. You like wallowing in the, in the muck and the mire, okay? That shows you've not been born again. So you need to deal with that and go to Jesus. Paul reminds them, though, he says, among whom even you walked once when you were living among them, as when you lived in these sins, you, you were doing these things, but Christ saved you. Christians are not sinless people. They're not people that don't have past. They're redeemed people whose been, their relationship to their past has been changed by forgiveness. And they now have new life. Remember Matthew 1.21, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. No, he shall say, he shall save. It doesn't say he's going to try. It says he's going to do it. His people, that refers to his elect, his church, uh, his elect among you know, the Jews and the Gentiles, from their sins. Many a, many a good old revivalist has pointed out, he didn't say he's going to save his people in their sins. He's going to save them from them, get you out of it. And we need to remember that. And so then Paul, in verse, um, after pointing out that these, you know, these things bring the wrath of God, and that they'd once walked in them. But now he goes on and further. He says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. He begins to deal with heart sins. That show themselves as mouth sins, you might say. Paul does not say in verse 8, Now relax and don't strive against sin in your own lives or in the world. Because, well, you're forgiven and there's no need to fight against sin anymore. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, all right, you can look back and say, yeah, I'm no longer living that way. Praise God. So he says, all right, let's deal with some things you do need to look at and deal with. Now you yourselves are to put off all these. Instead, he calls the Colossians to press ahead and deal with the remnants of a shattered sin that's in their lives. Now, when a forest fire is extinguished, the firefighters stay and deal with the smoldering remains. You can talk to Jack. You were on, you know, fire crews and you helping the guys. You know all that. As soon as they got the last blaze out, they didn't just all pack up and leave. They go through and they look for the hot spots. Because if you don't deal with the hot spots, what happens? It can break out again and cause destruction and damage. So when you think the fire's out, that doesn't mean it's completely out. Under the surface, there's still things smoldering that have to be dealt with. All right. So when a forest fire is extinguished, the firefighters stay and deal with the smoldering remains. The smoking coals that still could flare up and destroy life and property. Paul here identifies those smoldering hot spots that must be extinguished in every Christian's life. So he says to put these things off, lay them aside, renounce them, don't tolerate these things. He says, uh, even you, the term is used here, it also in verse 7, then in verse 8, even you need to deal with this. 
You yourselves, it says in the, in the uh, English, but the idea, even you need to deal with this. Don't think you're exempt from this fight. You've got a victory in Christ, but it has to be applied. You're to occupy and start with dealing with yourself. Even you put off all those old things and join the fight. So he names off here in verse 8. These are mouth sins, and they reveal heart sins. Wrath, tantrums is the idea, having fits of anger. And then uh, anger, he says, that's thumon, it's heated anger, heated outburst. Get rid of that garbage. James says in, in chapter 3, verse 5, that the tongue is a fire, and it sets on fire the course of nature and is itself set on fire with the fires of hell. Why did James say it? Because he'd seen the destruction that words bring about. And so James says the tongue is a fire. Get it under control. Now, then the next word he uses here, Paul says, you've got to deal with it's that word kakia. We saw evil or bad, ugly. Malice, ugly words and behavior. Blasphemy, abusive language. <coughs> you know, we, we talk about verbal abuse now a lot in our society. Uh, the, the word blasphemy, you know, we understand it to mean toward God, but it can also mean toward other people. When you speak words that are... Uh, you know, blasphemy has almost in English, we think of the word blasting something, you know, when something's been blasted. Sometimes we blast people with really cruel things we say to them without any regard to what's going on in their hearts or lives because we want to see them doing our will. We can't have that. Blasphemy. Some folks kill their families and friends with their abusive tongues. They and everyone around them, you know, as Jesus talked about plucking out your eye or cutting, out, or cutting off your hand or your foot if it leads you into sin. Can you imagine, or I hope you're not in the case where everybody would be better off if your tongue was cut out. If you couldn't speak, people's lives would improve. You don't want that. You want to be able to speak good, encouraging words. Paul says, get this blasphemy, hurtful language, abusive language out of your speech. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it, that is love life, shall eat the fruit thereof. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, now here's the key to this. How do you deal with this? Jesus said, a good man, that's good by grace, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. Well, how do you get treasure? Well, you go around and collect it. How do you get good thoughts? Well, you go to God's word and you collect good thoughts of promises and then you, you look at things in light of those promises and you collect good thoughts, good opinions of others by God's grace working in them. It doesn't mean you ignore the fact that people are sinful. Uh, but it does mean that you begin to have, as Paul said, thinking more highly of others than of yourself. A good man out of the good treasure of his house, he brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what comes out of your mouth shows what's in your heart. And then he says you're not to have any uh, indecent words come out of your mouth. Filthy language, he says, indecent or filthy speech. That this word, iskrologia, uh, is, the, is the Greek word there. It's only used one time in the New Testament, right here. But the parallel is in Luke, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, building up, that it may minister grace to the hearers doesn't mean you always have to say what people want to hear. That's a bad thing. Okay? But it means that you speak in such a way that others will be encouraged. Now, that can be in the form of a rebuke sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm encouraging you to repent. Okay? But it means 
try to always have the good of others in view. Paul tells the Colossian brethren to stop lying to each other in verse 9. Stop lying. That's a present imperative. He's saying you're doing this and you need to stop doing it. Abusive speech is a form of lying because you're using ugly words to make another person think that he or she has no value or purpose. And lying is a form of abusive speech because you're deeming that person unworthy of truth. So we should speak the truth with each other and stop lying, he says. He said, you guys have been doing this. Stop doing it. He tells him in verse 9 to put off those bad things and then tells him to put it on. Put on the good things. Don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You're in God's image. Be an image bearer. Put off those old things. You're not who or what you were. You're who you are by God's new creation, by his redemptive act in Christ. Know who you are, and you can rejoice in that. Wow, with all my struggles, with all my failures, I have a Savior who loves me. I have a God who will never leave me nor forsake me. I have a, 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 a gracious God who's created me anew. God's image is being restored in us according to knowledge, it says. And that's that word epigenosis. It's not just intellectual knowledge, it's experiential knowledge as we come to know God's grace. In Ephesians 4.24, Paul, in a parallel passage, says that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So the old Heidelberg Catechism, question six, actually brings up that the image of God and man consists of knowledge, righteousness and true holiness those are the areas where god's image shines forth in us knowledge epigenosis experiential knowledge true knowledge righteousness doing what is right before god and true holiness that is trusting in christ but living a life separated unto god and he says in this he said those old categories that people use to define people they don't they don't hold up anymore where there's neither greek nor jew circumcision nor uncircumcision barbarian nor Scythian. And when I saw it, I thought, what is a Scythian? It's only used one time in the New Testament, and here it is. I looked it up, and it said, these are the most, considered to be the most uncouth, uncivilized, violent savages. And then dash Russians. <laughs> so if anybody in Russia is listening to this, I apologize. That's what was in the dictionary. In other words, it doesn't matter what your background is. In Christ, those categories don't, up, they don't hold. Slave or free. But all things and in all things, Christ. In the Greek, the word Christ is the last word. Old categories are no longer valid. Don't define yourself by what you once were. Uh, they don't apply anymore. We're new creatures in Christ, and we're defined by our new life in him. We're defined by him. You belong to Jesus. Jesus is your life. And that's why Paul says there's certain things you need to deal with. Be who you are. And don't let the world or the flesh or the devil define you differently. Know who you are. God has said you're his child, and he loves you. With that, let's go to prayer. Father, we ask you to bless us now and be with us. Seal your word to our hearts and minds. And we thank you in 